Hello everyone and welcome to our series of podcasts on HPCC systems. Today we have Richard to talk again on our migration and, and, and journey to the cloud. Um, he is going to cover a little bit of work he covered at the very beginning of this series, but also include some uh, additional overview on our current strategy and, uh, and what has been uh, our current developments as well. Uh, a lot of things have happened over several uh, weeks uh, in, the, in the last couple of months. And uh, Richard can really give us a good amount of perspective on those things and, and more. Hello, Richard, and welcome. Hello. Thank you for being here, to be here. Hey, Richard, tell us a little bit about what we have been doing on HPC over the last several weeks. Uh, we have we've been quite active. We released quite a few uh, minor enhancements in, uh, in versions, but we also released a, a newer version. And we are working actively on the next one, right? Uh, yes, we we released uh, uh, seven seven eight was the first version that had any cloud support. We released seven ten um, uh, three months after that, and we released. Uh, uh, we're, we're now working on seven twelve, uh, which is due for the start of October. Um, each of them has a bit more support for the for the cloud. It's a bit more robust. Uh, by the time we get to seven twelve, we're hoping. Uh, it'll be mostly cooked. Um, there, there may still be the odd hole here and there, but uh, we should at least know what things are going to look like, even if we haven't completely finished implementing them. Very good. So, um, seeing from the outside, uh, it seems that we first focus on, on the compute capabilities of four. Uh, then we started to look at the uh, storage piece. And, and then we are going towards Roxy and, and the other components. Uh, is that the way the progress has been made or, or do you think there is more interleaving across that? Kind of. It is a bit interleaved though. Um, we, we have a lot more to do on the storage capabilities. Um, we, our first uh, release was fairly basic in, in terms of what you could do with storage. You could, if, you, if you could describe where you wanted to store your data, as a persistent volume, then you could store your data there. Um, but uh, we're moving towards giving you much more options for storing data. Uh, for example, if you want to store it in Azure blobs or uh, S3 uh, containers or data lakes or uh, any of the other uh, possible um, locations, and you'll be able to configure that potentially even on a, a file by file or at least scope by scope basis so that some some data files uh, you, you can access uh, on um, uh, yeah, that, that, that don't need rapid access that you're accessing less frequently uh, you, you'll put into cheaper but slower storage whereas things that need uh, access very very rapidly or accessed all the time you, you can put into more expensive but faster storage so um, traditionally we always uh, supported any storage that was POSIX compliant, but it seems to me that now we are expanding that to also support HTTPS type access to storage or HTTP access to storage as well, or um, API based. Certainly API based access to, to storage uh, for things like the, the blobs. Um, they tend to be <coughs> accessed using uh, SOAP calls or similar. Uh, we, we have actually always had the ability to plug in um, access to 
if you could write code to access something as as if it was a a file then you could access it from thor for example we've had the ability to access git repositories which is done by an api or or files inside zip files which again is done by an api and, and indeed accessing files that are not on the local machine uh, which we do via uh, the file serve that's done by the same uh, hooking mechanism so we, we've had the hooking mechanism in there uh, for many years it's just a question of writing the implementations of those hooks for the specific um, target file systems that is very cool but some of these file systems that we are talking about or, or file access uh, strategies have different type of uh, performance characteristics some of them um, allow for random access some others uh, require sequential access so how do we ensure that we have the right file system there or how do we hint the user to use the correct one well there will be some some rules here and there that will we'll have to say you, you can't use uh, a file system that only supports sequential reads if you're you know, wanting to, to read it randomly but most of the time most of our file accesses uh, in are in fact sequential um, certainly in Thor if you're not using an index uh, it's going to be read sequentially um, if in um, when writing files, we generally write them sequentially. We have had to make some changes, for example, in the index writing code, uh, so that we, uh, <coughs> we, we've made some changes so that we can write an index only ever writing sequentially. Uh, there were two or three places in the old index writing code that, that would seek back to the beginning to update a few things. And, and we've made some, some changes to the layout of the file so that we don't have to do that anymore. So it is now possible to write an index completely sequentially. Um, <clears throat> we've had to make some changes to things like, um, for example, in, in a standard local POSIX file system, there are some operations which are very cheap. Um, finding out the size of a file is very cheap. Uh, in, uh, in some of these APIs, that counts as a call that you get charged, you know, however many cents for, for an access is. So you don't want to do it any more than you have to. Um, so we've had to start thinking about you know, ways of um, restructuring the code slightly to avoid unnecessary access uh, in order to, to avoid unnecessary cost. But for the most part, most of these um, remote files or API accessed files um, will be okay for most purposes. The, the, the trade-offs will be you know, which one's going to give you the performance you want and, and which one's going to give you the cost you want. Yeah, I, we had a few discussions with other people as well on this and, and how this is a fairly complex optimization problem. You need to define what you want to optimize for and sometimes you have trade-offs. You might optimize for something more, but then you lose on the other side. Well, optimization is always a series of trade-offs. Um, uh, but... Uh, but yes, I mean, one of the things that we will be optimizing for in the first versions is uh, is speed to market. You know, we'll, we'll make sure it works first, um, uh, and then we'll worry about, okay, can we shave a, a few cents here and there off, off the file accesses? Can we uh, shave a few seconds or, or minutes or, or hours or whatever off the, uh, off the speed? Very good, but certainly giving people the option to um, select different things and to optimize themselves for some things 
is um, is is useful, um, and 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 more if we can um, give them some visibility into this. I know that there is some work going into ECL Watch to build capabilities to um, try to predict based on, on historic execution of certain work units, try to predict the codes and yeah, so yeah. That, that's going to be quite useful. Yeah, the the work unit analyzer will become quite important in in working out you know after you run your your job. You know, where the, where the time went, where the money went, and, and where you may want to change change things to uh, improve it. Yeah, sometimes a one-off job. Well, it might take a little bit longer or cost you a little bit more money, but it's not that big of a deal. But it's something that runs recurrently uh, every day or or every hour. If it's a one-off job, your biggest cost usually is the developer time. So. Um, yeah, yeah. Worrying about making the job run ten minutes faster by having a developer spend two more hours to, uh, look, staring at the code isn't a good trade-off. But very good point. Very good point. So, okay. So let me touch on a more um, complex or maybe for a future-facing <laughs> problem. So um, we this I assume that applies to everything, but of course certainly applies uh, perhaps more to Thor. But how about Roxy? Uh, what's what's in the Roxy front? What's been done so far? What's been planned? Roxy um, Roxy is a more complex problem in in, in some ways, um, well, in many ways. What's uh, that? A conference call. Roxy is a more complex problem in many ways. Um, for a start, the, the data access needs to be fast. Um, it, it's seeking all over the place. It gets a lot of its performance from things being local. Um, you probably aren't going to want to run Roxy with the the files stored on AWS Glacier storage, for example. Um, but, and probably in fact, uh, you, you're, you may find you want to actually move the files into local SSDs as Roxy starts up, or you may find you know, networked SSDs may be fast enough. I mean, the, the, there's a lot of unknowns about what's going to be fast enough for Roxy. Um, in the past, in Roxy on sort of bare metal, we've tended to say, we've got this Roxy, it's big enough to hold all the data, now let's use it for as many queries as we can use it for, um, and until you know, it runs out of capacity, and, and then we bring up another one in parallel. If you're not storing your data on your Roxy, if you're storing your data off-node, as is typically going to be the way on the cloud, then that picture changes. What you probably want to do is have all of your data stored you know, on the cloud, on off-node storage, shared between as many compute boxes as you want. And those compute boxes, you know, their size isn't going to be governed anymore by what the data size is. It's going to be governed by what the compute load is going to be. And there's no need to share that Roxy between multiple unrelated sets of queries just because they happen to use similar data. So you're probably going to want to start running multiple uh, small, uh, smaller Roxies uh, in terms of compute size um, that will cache data that is relevant just for the queries that they're running, 
that do a small family of queries. So it's, it's going to change the, the sort of usage picture a little bit, I suspect. I also want to ask, because sometimes you have different queries that may use similar data, and perhaps one query helps cache data for the other query. So the fact that you're oh. running those things... Yeah, using the same files, it doesn't necessarily mean they're using the same parts of those files. I mean, if you've got you know, the, the header file or, or you know, a, a, a list of... Uh, dead people that you're looking up to decide whether to send them um, mailing cards or, or you know, mailing votes or something, um, then that's not going to be the same parts of the file necessarily as your file that's doing a, uh, a, a mailing list trying to decide, I don't know, who to sell a greenhouse to. Um, not that we do either of those things. Good point, good point. Yeah, yeah the... the the locality of reference is not just at the file level, it's at the sort of area within the file. So I don't know whether they necessarily would share cache. I mean, yes, they'll share a bit, but not necessarily as much as you think. Do you think there will be some work in uh, improving um, some of these uh, clever data structures that allow you to um, hold some sort of a very dense cache, like I, bloom filters? or like um, uh, bitmap indices. Uh, anything that where you can hold a, a lot of dense information in one place that you can cache, and then the file might be a large file that is harder to cache. Yeah, our, our indexes have supported uh, Bloom filters, and in fact use Bloom filters by default uh, since version seven, I think. Um, yeah. So those will help. We, you know, they're likely to help more in a situation where you can't rely on locality of, of caching so much. The other thing we're looking at is um, if you're wanting a Roxy to auto scale according to load, which you know, we've got all the code in to do, uh, it's no good if the Roxy node that you put in to help has an empty cache and is therefore running slower than yeah. the nodes. Um, so, you know, cache, automatic cache warming is, is quite a hot topic, if you like. Now, we have all the information we need about what the what the buddy nodes consider to be the hot part of the of the cache are. You know, we, we've we've cached the the unpacked in node indexes. We can also store information about what's recently been evicted from that cache, but is probably still in the um, the operating system level cache. So if we use that information to automatically pre-warm the cache when a new node comes up and only bring it into the the list of active uh, nodes once the cache is warm, then the auto-scaling will be a lot more effective, we think. This is something we're uh, experimenting with at the moment, but I expect it to be quite a, a significantly useful feature, not just in, in cloud, in fact, for, for bare metal, it'll be quite handy. Yeah, certainly, but ensure that even if you need to auto-scale in bare metal, uh, yeah, or, or expand your change, yeah. Auto-scaling in bare metal is done at the cluster level, typically, at least uh, yeah. how we, we do it in-house. But those clusters cannot be put online in production until we've warmed them up a bit by sending them, you know, what we do is we send them a few pre-recorded queries. But if we can do better than that by saying, you know, we, we, we know what's hot at the moment, not just what's typically hot every day. You know, we, we know what's hot right now. You know, let, yeah. let's, pre-warm it automatically. Yeah, that, that, that is very interesting. I think it's, uh, it's going to be um, a, a, a new way to 
um, give flexibility to Roxy, regardless of which environment they, they run. Um, okay. you, you're absolutely right. Before you brought the new Roxy up, and uh, you need to pre-warm it in some way, even with historic things from previous days. But that doesn't give you the, the, the best uh, warming strategy. If you knew what's happening in the last hour, that might be far more useful. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like if you're, if you're implementing a, a Twitter-like thing, then what's hot today is very different to what was hot yesterday. But, uh... Uh, yeah. Yes, absolutely, yeah. So, and tell me about the future. So, so Roxy, uh, ESP, DALI, so what's coming down the road? What, are the, what is the effort now, um, for certainly for um, the next version, the 7.12, or, or even for the one beyond that, right? Um, well, the next, the, the big effort for 7.12 is, is finishing off the, uh, the way of describing lots of different storage locations, uh, making sure that we have tested and described how Roxy works. Uh, we've had a big debate about how to deploy queries to Roxy because you know, is that going against the zero touch philosophy on the cloud, bringing up a Roxy and then deploying yeah, queries good, to it? Good point. Um, bringing up a Roxy and then deploying new data to it. And, you know, there's, there's been debates around that. I think the, the conclusion is probably that we end up uh, doing things more or less the way that we do today. Um, but, um, well, the databases and data storage in the cloud doesn't really fit the zero touch model all the time. If you think of deploying new data to Roxy as being like adding data to a database, you know, you, you can't have a zero touch database. Um, but adding new queries is a little bit different and uh, it may well be that at least uh, from a operational point of view, uh, we will treat that as, as a zero touch type operation. We won't expect people to deploy new queries to a Roxy that is, is live. Um, but whether we'll actually physically prevent it, I'm not sure. Well, but that makes sense. Um, that might even uh, add a, an additional layer of robustness or, or, or better testing when you deploy a query on that. I think it sounds like a good idea if it's not a lot of overhead. But since most times in the cloud you deploy infrastructure as code and, and, and Roxy is no different, yeah. um, maybe the overhead is not that much. I would expect people to organize their Roxy in the cloud such that if they wanted to deploy a whole new set of queries, that they would bring up a new Roxy with a whole new set of queries on, rather than saying, where's my Roxy that I can deploy these queries to? Uh, which is what they, people tend to do now in the bare metal case. Uh, so it, it, it's as much a mindset thing as anything else. Yeah, it is. It is yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it might help also in um, even bare metal environments. Uh, it might um, make deployments of new queries more resilient and, and, and less prone to, to having issues. Yeah, certainly in, in cases like the Fusion Roxy, then, then being able to do green testing or, or whatever um, by bringing up your, your new system alongside your old and, and makes a lot of sense. Very good. Okay Richard, this is great. I thought we got a lot of content and, uh, and this is going to help at least paint a picture of, of where we are going. So uh, tell me just for uh, for kicks, uh, so and, and for 8.0 what do we expect? So what's so by then, people will have a production-ready system that will be uh, cloud-friendly. That's, that's the that's the ultimate. The intention, yes, um, 
I, I hope we're still just about on target to, to have everything completely production ready in ATO. Um, or, or maybe what will happen is you know, we, maybe we'll need another another round of the seven series, you know, seven seven fourteen or something. But uh, but yes, when we when we are fully production ready, uh, I guess is when we'll call it ATO. Um, one thing we're working on um, to make it more production ready rather than more development ready is uh, security side of things. So um, uh, ingress, egress controls at the pod level. So no node can talk to any node that it's not supposed to. Um, yeah, potentially encryption in transit between nodes for uh, systems that, uh, that require it. Uh, that are paranoid about other you know, co, uh, co-located uh, systems snooping on their data, for example. Um, uh, secrets management is all, all, all got to be worked out, yeah. and that sort of thing. You know, and all, oh, yeah. all these things you can ignore in a development environment if, if you want. You know, they, they, they don't stop it working, they, but they do stop people wanting to or being able to use it in a production environment. Well, and in a bare metal environment where you can put a wall, a big wall, thick wall around it, it is less critical. But certainly here in the cloud where uh, your things intermingle with something else, some, someone else's things, yeah. then it's yeah. a little bit more. One thing we haven't been able to do on bare metal in the past and can now do in the cloud um, is, is define, I mean, we, we've been able to do it in bare metal but it's been a separate task. Operations have had to set up their IP tables to control what node can talk to what. Now we can actually define all of those rules from the structure, you know, from the, directly from the Helm chart, because we know, you know, what pod is supposed to talk to what. You know, we, we define the, the network uh, services uh, or network policies, I should say, uh, you know, as part of the Helm file generation, so that we can. Uh, uh, and one of the nice things that will give us is we won't have to worry about uh, operations randomly creating probes that uh, crash Thor by connecting to it. We'll, we'll, we'll have rejected them. <laughs> but the counterpart is that now that you auto scale, and the dynamic auto scaling can also take into account that and can add the correct rules when it scales, yeah. uh, which is something that is almost impossible to do if you are doing this manually in your own environment, right? Yeah. But at least it's impossible to do bike every time. It's certainly much easier in this environment, partly because of the containerization, but because the rules are now at the process level. The process level is the same as the pod level, is the same as the IP tables level, if you like, where if you're trying to do that on bare metal, where you've got to work out, okay, well, you know, there's 10 different processes running on this node. Which ones are allowed to talk? It becomes a lot more complex. Yeah, yeah, and even then, unfortunately, there is so much that you have a limit to how uh, discriminative you can be with IP tables when you're trying to bind the process. Sometimes you just need to be general and say, okay, anything coming to this node, unless you have processes that listen to different IPs, and, and yet you can't enforce it. So it's a, I think a, moving to the um, Kubernetes approach, um, it's, a, it's helping us quite a bit on that area. And again, it can automate things, so it's less likely the human will make a mistake as they need to reconfigure something. That's good. Okay, great, Richard. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think this is a, a great closing for this series on, on our journey to the cloud. And uh, we'll be having a lot more content down the road. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Okay. Thank you.